Friends, let's take our Bibles, if you will, and turn to the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be looking this morning at this great song to close out Luke chapter 1. It's the song of Zechariah, and we'll be starting in verse 67. And before we begin reading this portion of God's Word, let's seek our Heavenly Father again in prayer. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we come before You eager to hear from You, thankful that You are a God who has revealed Yourself to us, made known Your wondrous ways. And Lord, we pray that You would be pleased by the power of Your Spirit to enlighten our eyes with the truth and rejoice our hearts with the things that You convey to us. Draw near to us now, equip us to understand, and may our hearts welcome Your Word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I read this, remind you kind of where we are in Luke chapter 1. Many of you are probably somewhat familiar uh, with what's going on in this text. God has appeared through His angel Gabriel to Zechariah a priest, and He's told him that he, through his wife, they're going to have a child. It was a shocking thing, as we'll see more about in a few minutes, but he didn't respond well. And eventually, the Lord is going to open his mouth to praise God in prophecy. And that's where we find ourselves in this song in verse 67. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's holy word? And his father, that is John the baptizer's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, For He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This, brethren, is the word of the Lord, and may He be praised. Please be seated. Well, this morning we're dropping in to one of the preludes to the Christmas story. And as we stand here on the cusp of Christ's arrival in Luke 1, wondrous things are happening among the people of God. Over 400 years prior to our passage, Malachi had uttered the Old Testament's last prophecy. He spoke of the Son of Righteousness rising with healing in His wings, the Messiah to come, and then he also spoke of one who would prepare the Savior's way, and Elijah to come who would turn hearts, who would lead people to repentance. Now, Malachi had a a duet of themes, we might say. The Savior's coming, 
and a forerunner to prepare the way. And it's been a long time of silence, but Luke is telling us here that those twin truths are being fulfilled. Now, the fulfillment begins in an unexpected way, which is often how God does things. First, that angel Gabriel appears to the old priest with a barren wife and says, you're going to have a child and he will be special in the purposes of God. A a barren woman advanced in years, supernaturally conceiving is totally unexpected. And yet, it does fit a pattern the Lord keeps showing us. You remember the barrenness of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah. And in every case, God is intervening for His lowly people. He's doing it again here. He's revealing that the ruin of sin will not ruin His purposes. He will overcome all of our trouble with His own salvation and it will be all of Him. That's even more striking in the next thing that the Lord does in Luke chapter 1. An angel is sent to a poor, insignificant girl in Nowheresville, Nazareth of Galilee, and to this young teenage girl, Mary. The Lord says that she will conceive in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit and the child to be born will be the very Son of God. These are mystifying, awe-inspiring things. And God is keeping His promises. He's bringing one to prepare the Messiah's way, and then the Messiah will be born. And when we hear news of this, what moves the people of God to sing? Redemption throughout the history of God's people always produces song. And that's what we see in Luke chapter 1. We not only have a duet of themes, we have a duet of song. Mary's song and Zechariah's song. Well, we're just focusing on Zechariah's song so that we're not here the rest of the day. But as we're focusing on it, I want you to see three things that kind of work their way all throughout this glorious song called Zechariah's song. Now, I want you to remember, first of all, Zechariah's situation. We're going to think about the faithfulness of God that meets him and the people of God. But think about Zechariah's situation as we consider faithfulness. Gabriel had told Zechariah that his wife would conceive. Now, Zechariah is a faithful priest. He's a blameless man, Luke tells us. Not perfect, that's not what blameless means, but pursuing the Lord. He's committed to God's commands. And though he knows the history of God's people, how the Lord has intervened in the past with barren woman uh, in in various ways, here, Zechariah seems to forget everything he knows. His initial response to this incredible news is not delight, but it's doubt. He said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Unbelief suddenly seizes this godly man. And he, in essence, is telling God he needs to prove his power to him. Now, just a little aside here. We, we need to notice and recognize how easily unbelief can overtake us all, even the most faithful, the most spiritually minded among us. Unbelief is a problem that lingers in our deceitful hearts. It's always hunting for an occasion to come out and to cloud your eyes to the goodness of God. And the people of God have to engage in daily combat to kill this unbelief. We often fail here, as Zechariah does in this scene. 
But let us learn, brethren, at, at the very outset, the way not to slip into unbelief is to keep our eyes focused on the power of God, the promises of God, and the unceasing compassions of God. Are we a God-centered people in our thoughts? Do we look at life, as Zechariah is going to look at it here, just as in a horizontal plane? Our problems, our fears, our worries? Or do our eyes look up to the Lord and see the great things He can do? Well, Zechariah wanted proof. And the proof of God's power is coming in a way he would have never picked. Elizabeth will conceive, as Gabriel said, but Zechariah will be muzzled. Now, initially, when he came out of the temple, it was clear through his sign gestures that he couldn't talk. Some of you are wishing that miracle could happen with your husband this Christmas season. He's totally silent, and he's trying to sign to indicate that he's seen something, something incredible has happened. And in light of verse 62 in chapter 1, it's possible he couldn't hear either. Because when the time comes for John to be born, and they're having a debate about naming the child, Elizabeth insists, as Gabriel had said, his name shall be John. Well, I declare, said the ladies of Judah, doesn't she know how uncouth that is? That's not a family name. Isn't it interesting how people haven't changed? Don't be surprised when Aunt Sally tells you at the holiday gathering you're going to have soon about something you ought to be doing. That's what's happening in the text. The peer pressure is squeezing to try to give a child a different name. And the folks seem to know or seem to think that they know best. Well, as Zechariah is turned to to set his wife straight, verse 62 indicates that the people start signing to him as though he can't hear what's going on. But then Zechariah gets a tablet and he asserts his name is John. And at that moment, his tongue is suddenly loosed He's filled with the Spirit, and he begins prophesying praises unto the Lord. Now, one wonders in those nine months of silence, what was Zechariah thinking? Well, friends, I'm sure he grieved his poor response. I'm sure his unbelief overwhelmed him. I'm sure the rebuke he was given drove him in repentance to the Lord, and he had a greater awareness of his own need to be forgiven, and of a Savior to come. But I think that we can confidently say that we do know what Zechariah was thinking because we see his mind turn to the promises of God. What is about to come out of Zechariah in this song that we read is absolutely saturated with Scripture. By one count, there are approximately 33 Old Testament allusions in this song. If you have an ESV study Bible, it has 70 verses of cross-reference just on this section. That is staggering. And while I know Zechariah is prophesying, that is, he's enabled by the Spirit of God to speak the Word of God, prophecy is not just falling into a trance. The Lord uses, as authors of Scripture, the minds, the experiences, and the personalities of His people to speak for Him. Well, Zechariah has been thinking about stuff. He's been thinking specifically about the promises that God is bringing to pass, the redemption to come, the son of David, and then going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 of one who would rescue from Satan's power. And with a heart holding fast God's word, Zechariah just explodes with Scripture-saturated praise, Scripture 
saturated praise to the faithfulness of God. No joke, we could spend weeks hunting down every Old Testament reference. I won't do that with you. But it makes me wonder, how well do we know the promises of God? Do you know that old hymn, Standing on the Promises? You can't stand on promises that you don't know. Do you know the promises of God? How familiar are we with the grand story of redemption? The way promises are made and promises are kept. Indeed, how, how able are we to walk through Scripture and to show God's mighty acts coming to culmination in the Lord Jesus Christ? New Year's is right around the corner. Wouldn't it be a great resolution to know God's Word better? To have the promises of God filling your soul? Further, shouldn't there be an implicit question here as we see this man, spirit-filled, speaking? What does it mean to be spirit-filled? <clears throat> you know, in some circles, that means unrestrained expressions in worship. Shouting, hand-raising, dancing, and the like. But when Mary was filled with the Spirit earlier in this chapter, and when Zachariah is filled with the Spirit here, what do they both do? Well, they sing, they praise, but their praise is absolutely exploding with Scripture. Spirit-filled people are people who speak the Spirit-inspired Word. Is the Word of Christ dwelling richly within you? If you don't know the Word, it does beg a question. Am I Spirit-filled? Is God's Word governing my life? In fact, the Spirit always shines a spotlight on the Lord Jesus and never a spotlight on a mere man. That's why Spirit-filled people make much of Christ and not of themselves. How will John the Baptizer one day put it? This man who is filled with the Spirit from the womb, he will say, He, Christ, must increase. I must decrease. Are we full of the Word? Full of the Spirit? Is Jesus the focus of our attention, the subject of our songs, the intent of our conversation? That's what we're seeing here. Well, let me highlight under faithfulness three lines of fulfillment which really ought to blow our minds. A new Exodus, a new David, and a new covenant. Notice the opening declaration, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. Now, this language is interesting because it echoes Joseph's language to his brothers all the way back in Genesis chapter 50. Joseph told them a day was coming when the Lord would visit, same word, his people. And as we turn the page from Genesis to Exodus, and roughly 400 years go by, Israel is in misery until God does what? He raises up a Savior, Moses. And the people of God were wondering if God cared, if He saw them. And then he revealed to Moses, I have seen, I have heard, I have remembered my covenant, and I will redeem you with a mighty hand. That's exactly what happened in the Exodus. But if you know the Bible story, the days after the Exodus are days of darkness, when God's people descend into the ugliness of sin in the wilderness, or the ugliness of sin in the judges' period, or the ugliness of sin in the kings, mounting up through the centuries until God's people deserve judgment because they're entangled in idolatry. 
They're going to get it. However, the Lord promises a new day through His prophet Isaiah. A day when, does this sound familiar? When He would make a path through the waters. When there would be streams in the desert. It's echoing the Exodus. And the Lord is telling His people, Isaiah 43.1, Though, Israel, you are deaf, dumb, and blind. That's not God's way of just insulting us. These are metaphors of our sinful state. Though you deserve wrath, but now, thus says the Lord, Isaiah 43.1, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not. Do you know this verse? For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. Now, when Isaiah echoes the Exodus, redemption, what he's saying is a better Exodus is coming, a a new one. It's going to arrive. And it's so certain (coughs) that the Lord speaks of it as if it's already happened. I have redeemed you. Brethren, that's exactly the way Zechariah puts it here in Luke chapter 1. Blessed be the Lord, for He has visited, He has redeemed His people. Jesus hasn't come yet. Jesus is in the womb. Salvation is still future. But Zechariah declares that the Lord must be blessed because He has visited and redeemed His people. What he's saying is, what God is doing here is setting something in motion that cannot fail. God's mercies won't come up short from saving us from this world of sin and curse. We will have full salvation in the coming Messiah. And why will it happen? Only because God is faithful to His Word. Well, then there's not just a new Exodus, there's a new David. There are faithful promises that have been made to David. We actually get a whole line of these Old Testament prophets prophecies of a coming king. A snake crusher promised to Adam and Eve. A lion from the tribe of Judah promised the patriarchs. Balaam talked about a star rising and carrying a scepter from Jacob and smashing enemies. Hannah spoke of the horn of Yahweh's anointed. It's a symbol of great strength who would break into pieces the adversaries. And all of that leads to this moment where God told David, from you will come a forever king. Now we were thinking about this last week in Jeremiah 23. David's line was full of failure. And God's people may well have thought, everything is going to collapse. But the prophets say, no. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Zechariah, they all speak of this covenant God made with David. A king from David's line, a new David will come and rule. In other words, messianic hopes are not dashed. And look at what Zechariah is saying in this song. The king isn't born yet, but he says, verse 69, look at it. God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Where? In the house of his servant David. And then notice the next phrase, verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So many prophets' words are coming to pass right here. And we see all that God is doing. Isaiah 9 might be the most memorable to you. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called what? Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of His government and of His peace, there will be no end 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Do you see what is happening? Faithfulness is on display. We should all erupt right now into great is thy faithfulness. But then there's more as he highlights what God is doing. Verse 72, God also is showing mercy promised to our fathers. <coughs> Excuse me. Covenant, verse 73, specifically the oath that he swore to Abraham. Now, Abraham was promised a seed through whom the nations would be blessed. He was promised in that chilling scene on Mount Moriah a substitute for Isaac. Abraham told his son, the Lord will provide. I tell you, he doesn't understand the fullness of those words. But Jesus would one day say of Abraham, Abraham saw my day and was glad. He saw that there would be a substitute to die in the place of his people. Well, Jeremiah the prophet could look back at that promise given to Abraham and say the fixed order of God's covenant with day and night, the very maintenance of heaven would have to fail for God's word to fail. In other words, heaven and earth will not pass away before God accomplishes his promise. The new covenant about which Jeremiah speaks is a covenant that's connected to Abraham. It's not totally new. It's a renewed word, but now built on a better sacrifice with a better priest founded on better promises. That Jesus, the Lamb of God, would be the great high priest and He would take away our sins forever. Jesus is the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, why is that so important that Matthew would start his gospel with a genealogy of all things to tell you Jesus is the son of Abraham and son of David? Why is it so important that Luke chapter 1 would give us two songs specifically saying God is keeping His word to Abraham and to David? Well, brethren, it's because when God promised Abraham that great promise, that oath, that covenant, He, he gave him an illustration he had a little covenant-making ceremony. What you do in a covenant-making ceremony is that you take animals to sacrifice them and you, you chop them in half and you lay them opposite one another. And the covenant-maker and the covenant-underling, we might say, would pass between the pieces, essentially communicating, if I don't keep my word, let it be done to me as was done to these animals. When well, Genesis chapter 15 God puts Abram in a deep sleep and God alone passes between the pieces. What is the Lord saying? Abram, death be to me if I don't keep my word to you. And death be to me if you fail. We don't understand that in Genesis 15. But we're getting to understand it when the Son of God comes to take flesh. Because why is He taking flesh? God can't die. But the Son of God has taken flesh in order to do just that. To die for Abram and for all with Abram's faith that we would be cleansed of sin. For then that's what Jesus comes to do. And He comes to do it because He's faithful. How committed is God to keeping His promise? He's so committed that He will send His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to die for us. That is mind-boggling 
faithfulness. Now, there's a sense in which every sermon every week could be, God is faithful. But have we grown dull to that truth? Do we tritely say to one another with a little twinge of unbelief in our hard providences, well, God is faithful. That's true, friends. But do you embrace it? Do you live in light of it? Do you rejoice because this is true? We are surrounded by liars. Politicians, health officials, media, movies, music. We lie to one another, or at best, we don't follow through with what we say. We fail each other. We can't live up to the promises we make to ourselves. Our own hearts are deceitful. And then the devil lies to us on top of that. But God never lies. And the Lord fulfills what He says. He brings about His Word. You can sleep tonight because that's true. Your life doesn't hang on your faithfulness. You have failed. You will fail. But God never fails. And our hopes rest on His faithfulness in Christ to us. But not just faithfulness. See, secondly, we're picking up speed big time. Forgiveness. In this duet of themes in Luke 1, words about John the baptizer, words about Jesus, the motifs come together. John is coming to prepare Jesus' way. And John's ministry has a specific focus. Zechariah declares that the promises of old in verse 74 pertain to deliverance. But there's a key component to deliverance. And it's the bondage of sin itself. Look at verse 76. John comes to go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And what will he do? Verse 77. He will give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now, in what sense do God's people need a knowledge of salvation? Well, they need to know that deliverance is more than just from their physical enemies. Though Messiah will bring that too, more on that in a minute. The problem they really have is this lingering separation from God caused by sin. Our sin, which is natural to us, doesn't just put us a little distant from God. Scripture says in Romans 8 that we are hostile to God. We don't submit to His law. We refuse to do so. We are enemies of God. This is why Jesus needs to come. It's why we need a mediator. Our sins are not just inconvenient missteps. They are, as R.C. Sproul was so famous for putting it, cosmic treason. We have run roughshod over the law of God. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. We, by nature, are dead in sin. We're defiant in our deeds. We're dominated by the devil, and we are doomed to wrath. If that were the news that I were preaching to you alone this morning, it would be as C.S. Lewis once put it, put it, that everything is winter, and there is no Christmas. All is dark. Now, it's possible that some of you this morning actually abide in that condition. That you're a sinner separated from the Lord. And in that separated state, you have no hope and no light 
and no peace. But here's the glory of our God. With Him, there is forgiveness. Now, we live in a world with many small temporal offenses. We live in a world of relationship messes. I bet we could go around the room and take a survey of the people who could tell us as that holiday gathering is coming, the thing that you're dreading because of the relationship messes that exist. And in those relationship messes, there's a copious amount of bitterness and anger and revenge and vindictiveness where people want a pound of flesh and they're looking for ways to be offended. But here is the God who is offended. And what does He give? Forgiveness. Isn't that staggering? He had announced to Moses and back in Exodus 34 that He's a God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. He pardons our inner corruption, the twistedness of our heart. That's iniquity. He, in our transgressions, He, he pardons those direct, blatant violations, kind of the crossing of the line of His Word. And then just our sin, our missteps are falling short of the mark, either by commission or omission. The Lord is able and willing to cleanse us, to grant forgiveness. But forgiveness is costly. And that's the sense of the word redeemed. This whole passage is about redemption, but it points back to a redemption in the Exodus, you remember. And what did it cost the people of God? They, they were to take a lamb, slaughter it and mark the blood, uh, mark the door with the blood that they would be passed over. And then the Lord gave a whole sacrificial system to remind them, you're sinners and something's got to die in your place. And yet something about the sacrificial system just doesn't seem to work, right? It's an animal dying for you. Can an animal really represent you? They don't have souls. And then you have to keep doing it which means you don't really have redemption. You have a picture of redemption, but you don't have this settled state of peace with God. Something about the sacrificial system is off. It's not complete. It's not sufficient. But a redemption is coming that John will proclaim. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is saying, if you look to this one to come, the Messiah, Forgiveness in Him is full. John will speak of a salvation that includes, note the language, the forgiveness of their sins. Plural. All guilty crimes. Past crimes, present crimes, future crimes. It will all be pardoned. It's a done deal so that we have redemption. And of course, as Jesus begins His ministry, this is one of the things that shocks people when he looks to the paralytic and says, Son, I say to you, your sins are forgiven. The scribes are freaking out. Only God can forgive sin. Well, that's right. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Hear the wonder of what He can do. He will forgive us. How? Because He will come to carry our sorrows, to be bruised, struck for our iniquities. He will substitute Himself for all who trust in Him, laying down His life for the sheep. And everyone who rests in Christ has forgiveness. What a word. 
Friends, do you need forgiveness this morning? God is giving it in Jesus Christ. And why is He giving it? Look at verse 78. Because of His tender mercy. Notice what that does not say. Because I'm so good. Because I said the right words. I've built up a a treasury of merit in the past. I've kind of built my brownie points up with God and and that's why He's going to forgive me. No. Because of the tender mercy of our God. You deserve nothing but eternal death. And God says, in Christ, I offer forgiveness. Sometimes in our services, we say the Apostles' Creed and there's a clause in there or we confess, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. You ever want to just shout that from the rooftops? My soul is cleansed through Christ. Faithfulness, forgiveness. Finally, just see with me quickly, freedom. Freedom is obviously a component of forgiveness. Jesus will say in His ministry, everyone who sins is a slave of sin, but if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. What does this freedom entail? Well, it consists in freedom from Satan's accusing voice, freedom from an assaulting conscience saying God will never love you. No, if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation through Him. We have freedom from guilt. We have freedom from the curse of the law. We have freedom from sin dominating us and driving us away from Christ so we can't hear His sweet voice say, come unto me and rest. But brethren, there's more to our freedom that's highlighted here. First, it's a freedom from enemies. In verse 74, because God has kept His word to Abraham, Zechariah praises the Lord that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies. Now, it's a passing thought ultimately to say, we're delivered, that we might serve the Lord without fear. But think about that phrase, being delivered from the hand of our enemies. Many who study this song want to limit freedom to our spiritual enemies. Specifically, the power of sin as an enemy leading us into bondage. Now, freedom from guilt and freedom from the devil and freedom from the ultimate penalty, death, these are incredible things. But Zechariah is looking at A freedom that is so expansive, not just spiritual in nature, but in every possible way. We have real enemies. We're in a war that's been playing out from Genesis 3 between those who put their faith in God, like Abel, and those who hate the Lord and those who love Him, like Cain. And just remind me, what did Cain do to Abel? Well, he killed him. What did Pharaoh seek to do to Israelite children? He killed them. What does Saul want to do to David? Try to kill him. What does Queen Athaliah do to her children, her grandchildren in the royal line of David? She she kills them. What's Haman's plot against the Jews? To kill them all. Do you see a pattern here? When God's great Redeemer Jesus comes, what does the devil do through the agency of men. Judas, the various religious leaders, Herod, to kill Him. And Christ is crucified. 
And while Satan is acting, men are responsible. You remember the apostles will preach to those men responsible and tell them, you crucified the Lord of glory. You're guilty. <coughs> and yet they persist in being the <coughs> excuse me, they persist in being enemies. So then what do they start doing to the church? They start killing believers. And brethren, as we work through the New Testament into church history down to the present, real people, those aligned with the devil, continue their attacks against the people of God. We're not celebrating Christmas this morning in North Korea or Eritrea or Somalia or Nigeria. But I tell you, if we were, they would delight in this word perhaps more than we do because they're dying for Christ. But what Messiah has come to give is real freedom. Freedom that means a day when we will be liberated from all who are trying to destroy us. Satan will be overthrown at the cross and then the day will come when King Jesus will strike down every enemy. And that is a day of freedom. And that's an amazing thing here. We don't yet taste this freedom. We're not in a state of total peace. But it is assured because of Jesus. You remember how we began this, this hymn? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, because what has He done? He has visited and redeemed. And the light that Christ brings to shine shines on those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. We will be brought through death itself because death can't prevail. We will be guided into the way of peace. We will have freedom from death. Freedom from every aspect of the curse. Freedom from anyone at any time doing anything to make us afraid. That is what God is doing, brother. He's showing us His faithfulness by making us taste His forgiveness and revel in that freedom. And that is a freedom that starts now for those who trust in Christ. And it's a freedom that we increasingly enter to, into until the day comes when the shadows flee away. I wonder as we close if you can say this morning, I am free. I am free from a condemning conscience. I am free from sin's dominion. I am free from the sting of death. I am free from anything any man would ever do to me because even if you kill me, you just send me to Jesus faster. I am free. This is what God gives us in Jesus Christ. What a faithful God who brings reconciliation, the full pardon of sin, and freedom that can never be taken away. If that doesn't make you want to sing, something's wrong with you. Your heart isn't right. And you need to seek the Spirit in Jesus Christ that you would be roused to praise the Lord, singing, Blessed be the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we stand in awe of Your goodness and Your marvelous gifts. The, these gifts of faithfulness, forgiveness, and freedom. Help us to rejoice in what You provide in Your Son and to sing praises unto Your name forever and ever. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.